All right, if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and uh, grab it. Turn it to the book of Colossians. That's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. If you don't own one, we've got some on the back table. Grab it, please. We'd love for you to have that. That's our gift to you. Um, if you're visiting with us this morning, you are about to have all your suspicions about church confirmed. Uh, because this week we start a sermon series on generosity. Which means that you, uh, it, it, you're right. All the church ever talks about is money. All they ever talk about is money. The good news is you're here on a week in which our text actually has nothing to do with money. So, you'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that as, as we come into the time. You'll figure that out. We're in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. It's one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. If you, if you have your place, go ahead and stand. That's our habit here in honor of God's word. This is God's word to us, hear it. He, that is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God's word given so that you and I would flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, there are few things that we hold tighter to ourselves than our wallets few things that we get as nervous about you speaking into as our practice and our relationship with money. And so over the next um, eight weeks, a little break in the middle, we ask for your grace to be able to become conformed to your image, to a people who are generous people who give freely because you have given us freely. Help us to hear these things and to see Jesus who is not only the the basis of that but is the one who enables and empowers it. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Have a seat. So in general, there are two kinds of churches. uh, Yeah, we'll say two kinds of, well, maybe even preachers. When it comes to our topic over the next eight weeks, the first is the kind that constantly talks about money. And they do that because they want yours, right? This is the word of faith, the Joel Osteens, the Kenneth Copelands, the Benny Hens of the world. This is what most people think about when they think about churches and money. This is basically a lot of dudes getting rich out of the lie that their lifestyle is what it is because God wants Christians who have enough faith to have what they have instead of the fact that they have what they have because they prey on other people. And the second, the second is the kind that is reacting against that by not talking about it at all. That's probably most of your experiences, right? Most of our experiences, you get the, uh, the, uh, the yearly tithe sermon, right? That's the like, well, it's about time to do budgeting again. I guess we've got to talk about this. And so they're react. They don't want anyone to, to think that 
that they're like that because it, it can seem rather self-serving, can it not? I mean, I get paid from what you give. And so it can be rather self-serving or sound at least self-serving because it sounds like, oh yeah, of course they, this guy wants our money because he wants to have more of it himself. The problem with both of those is that both are too focused on money. Here's what I mean. Generosity, how the gospel impacts our relationship with money, isn't about money. It's about our hearts. This is why Jesus talked about money more than any topic. And it's why we are starting here on a text that has nothing to do with money at all. So what we're going to see this morning is simply this. That first and foremost, we need to see who everything is about. Before we even get into all the places Jesus talks about, all the places Paul is dealing with, all the places in the Bible talks about our relationship with money, first we need to see who everything is about. So that's why we're coming into Colossians. And as always, if, you, if you're a note taker, there's an outline, but if not, don't worry about it. So if you're new to church or you're new to the Bible or you're new, or you're new to people preaching on the Bible in church, uh, let, me, let me give you a little tiny background on this passage. So this book, Colossians, is written by Paul. Um, if you like intense people, you'd love Paul. Paul was an incredibly intense dude, one of the early followers of Jesus, not one of the first followers of Jesus in the sense that he wasn't one of the people that walked with Jesus while he was alive. In fact, he, in his early life, tried to destroy Christianity by destroying Christians. But then he... he he, all that intensity with which he tried to destroy Christians after meeting with Jesus, he actually turned that to trying to pr- promote the church, right? He went from trying to, uh, to completely destroy it to trying to uh, see it flourish, see it to make more. He's a prolific missionary, planted churches all over the Mediterranean, wrote like half the New Testament. So that's who is writing this here, Right? And so most scholars believe that the church that he's writing to or or collection of churches, because Colossae is a city, so there's more than likely multiple gatherings in the city, um, that that he is writing to them because they're having some confusion over Jesus, in particular where he fits within the whole religious hierarchy, right? Some of us in this room probably have that same wonder. Where exactly does Jesus fit? I mean, you can go to church for a long time and not know who Jesus is. You know he's a good dude, or at least you assume so, because everyone seems to think he's a good dude. You know he said some stuff and did some stuff, though you might not be too, too sure about some of it. You know that he died on a cross, and people said he got up three days later, but maybe you're not too sure of that either. I mean, who is he? Here's what's so important about this passage. This passage was written less than 30 years after Jesus walked on the earth. 30 years after he died and rose again. And that is important because what we are reading in this passage is not some kind of weird development that happened over hundreds of years of people venerating a guru. This is something that that was believed by those who were closest to the events themselves. So let's look at who he is first with being creator. Look down at verses 15 and 16 if you have your Bible out. So like I said, when I read it, when Paul says he, he means Jesus. So he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now stop there. So in the, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, 
but really everywhere. When you talk about someone being in the image of someone else, that is, that is a, a loaded term, right? It's a loaded term because humanity was made in the image of God. An image of something is, is incredibly important. But, but Paul is specifically saying that Jesus, that, that he's talking about the, um, the fact that Jesus is the image of an invisible God, which means that Paul is specifically saying that Jesus makes the invisible God visible. And if you want to see what God is like, you look at Jesus. And next, he says he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, throughout church history, and maybe you're kind of one of those nerds like me who likes church history or likes the early church, uh, the, the church throughout church history, this phrase has gotten people in a lot of trouble. Because when we read firstborn of all creation, we think the first one to be created. That seems to make sense, right? So that, that, that's kind of how we read the term. And in fact, there was a guy way back in the fourth century by the name of Arius who first kind of came up with that and thought that. And, and we have creeds written now, like the Nicene Creed and things like that, that were written specifically because he got that wrong. But, and I think this is important, it's not like he was the only one to think that. There are a lot of groups today that think that. Mormons think that, Jehovah's Witnesses think that. Like there's lots of groups who think that. In fact, there's probably even some, some uh, folks who, who preach in churches today who, who are saying things similar to that. But when the ancient world used the word firstborn, it didn't mean in terms of um, chronology, like timing. It meant firstborn. In the ancient world, to be the firstborn meant that you were the heir, which meant you got all the stuff. Okay, that's where this is coming from. So in the Jewish world, firstborn is about an inheritance. To call Jesus the firstborn over all creation is to say, not that he was created first chronologically, but to say that he owns it all, that it all belongs to him. And then in verse 16, Paul makes sure that we don't, we don't misunderstand what he meant by that when he says, because through him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. And then he goes on to list it, right? Things visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, all this stuff. Now, last time I checked, all meant all, right? So if all things were created, then obviously Jesus wasn't created, okay? So that's where Paul's making this specific. That in fact, everything, uh, what, what, what this amounts to in the ancient world is that there is no power above Jesus, that he has made everything. That if, if you're talking about angels, invisible, he created them. He's more powerful than them. Thrones like Rome, nope, he's more powerful than them. Uh, dominions, rulers, all these things, nope. Jesus is more powerful than them. Okay, you with me? He created everything. But then finally, he's, Paul says that everything was created by him and for him. Now, if you're one of those folks who, who is cool with underlining words in your Bible, and some of you aren't, because you were raised on the idea that that thing didn't be touched, okay? I understand. Thank you for your veneration, but it's a book, okay? You can underline it. If you're trouble with that, buy another one, all right? There's plenty of them out there. So, but I want you to underline that word for, because this is an important concept. Not only does the Bible teach that you and I were created by God, Okay, that's source of origin. We're created by him. It doesn't just speak to our origin, it speaks to our purpose. We're not just created by him, but we're created for him. For him. Not just by him, but for him. 
everything in creation, God made for himself. We'll come back around to that in a minute, okay? Now let's move on. He's not just creator, he's also sustainer. Look down at verses 17 and 18. So that phrase, he says, he is before all things, sounds redundant right after what he's already said, but, but that basically means he's supreme, right? Jesus is supreme. There's, there's no one above him. There's nothing above him. He is supreme, and that supremacy extends to the fact that not only does he create all things, but he holds them all together, right? And in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. Here's why that's important. Most of us in this country default into a kind of view of the world that, that has been traditionally called deism, okay? And in this area, especially with our proximity to that other city across the hill that's a little snooty, uh, we, we, um, we, we understand or at least have heard the term deism because of the rather important gentleman from the snooty city who made the house on the hill, okay? Because he was that. And a deist, a, a deist understanding of the universe is basically that God created all things like a clockmaker, wound it up really well, and then spun it into existence and just sits back and watches it go. He's distant from it. Everything works according to his design, yes, but that design is mechanistic. It runs like a big machine. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that the the world is mechanistic, which means that though that may be really normal in America and in the West in general, that is not Christian. And so if you've been holding that, I'm sorry to squash that on you. That's not Christian. The Bible actually teaches that God creates and sustains, keeps it running. Our, Our confession talks about his works of creation and providence. Creation making it providence keeping it going. He, he, in other words, everything in the universe is not mechanistic, it's personalistic. Everything goes because he says it goes. Now, some of you are thinking, but, but wait, Rick, what about like the laws of physics? Yeah, isn't it funny that we simply assume that because we can describe how a thing is done, it means it, it kind of acts on its own? I mean, some of you in this room can tell me exactly how it is that an automobile gets from point A to point B, exactly how the machinery works, exactly how every bit of, every complicated system interacts with every other complicated system. But that does not mean that there ain't nobody driving it. Right? Now, my guess is, is that as I say that, that Paul is telling us that Jesus keeps everything going, including you and me. My guess is that kind of hits you funny. And that bothers us because if we're honest, if we're honest, we don't like the idea of being dependent on something else or someone else. But what Paul is saying is what the Bible says consistently. That if God, and specifically in this passage, God the Son, Jesus, if if God stops holding our molecules together, that they kind of, if, if Jesus stops speaking exist that we spin apart, that we cease to exist. And I know that we don't like that. But why do you think that is? You see, Paul would probably say that the reason is, is because our hearts scream out um, that line from that famous poem Invictus. Like, I am, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Right? Right? 
I am autonomous. I need nothing except air, food, water, clothing and heat and companionship and never mind. I I need a lot of things. Okay. But the story of the Bible is that you and I were made to be in a lovingly dependent relationship with God for everything. And Paul already said that, right? Because we were made for him. We're made for him. Not made for ourselves. We're not made for independence. We're not made for autonomy. We're made for him. But we don't want that anymore. We want independence. But the problem is, is that we aren't independent any more than anything else in creation is. We are sustained by God and by him alone. Jesus is the supreme authority and through him everything holds together and that is true whether you think he's just a good dude in Birkenstocks or whether you think he's Lord of all whether you believe what the Bible says about him or not okay the last thing that he says in this passage verses 18 to 20 is that Jesus is the reconciler. Uh, so Paul brings this up at the end of verse 18. He says this, that he is the head of the body, the church. And then he talks about him being the firstborn again, but this time from among the dead. Now that, that can be confusing. So let me explain. Um, when we decided we wanted to be independent from God, uh, that, which is not the way we were made, but it's the way we decided way at the beginning of it all, we betrayed him and became guilty. And the weight of that betrayal that we have to carry, the Bible calls death. And he calls it not just physical death, not just physical death, it's, it's a kind of spiritual death. It's what Jesus called hell. He talked about hell a lot too, by the way. It's not just later people who did that. Jesus talked about an awful lot. And God promised, though that was what we suddenly uh, were carrying, God promised to make things right, to deal with our betrayal. And then throughout the Old Testament, the, the promise, that promise of him dealing with that begins to take shape. And that shape becomes becomes fuller as you work through it. And then the latter part of the Old Testament, the prophets, they begin talking about God making the world right, and as he makes it right, he's going to reverse death. In other words, he's going to make a new creation. And so when Paul says here that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, what he means is he is the first part of the new creation. He's the heir of the new creation as well. He's not just heir of the old, he's not just heir of all things, but then when God remade all things, he's also the heir of that. That everything is actually about him. In everything, Paul says, he might have the first place. And that is the bold, that is a bold statement, but Paul fleshes out in verse 20. Look there. Because he says, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth and heaven. This, is, this idea of reconciliation, I've talked about this before, but this idea of reconciliation is completely unique to Christianity. And that's because reconciliation implies relationship. It implies relationship. And religion really isn't about relationship. Religion generally is about appeasing the deity. Right? Keeping him happy, or at least keeping him from paying too much attention to you. It's about bargaining with him, whether we're talking about Islam or Hinduism or paganism or even, quite frankly, some false versions of Christianity. But this says, though, that God reconciled us to himself through the blood of Jesus' cross. Now, again, that can be hard for some of us. It can be hard for some of us because it seems really barbaric. Like, good grief, why the blood, why all this stuff? But listen... If guilt from our betrayal is death, then that is what has to be carried. 
And forgiveness, forgiveness is never simply pretending that something didn't exist. Forgiveness is always, 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 always. And I hope by now some of you will be able to repeat this with me, but I'm not asking you to do that. So don't, we're Presbyterian. We don't do that. But um, come on, that was a little bit funny. Okay. Forgiveness is always the betrayed person bearing the weight of the betrayal for the betrayer. Always. It's not simply pretending it didn't happen. It's going, I'm, I was betrayed by you, but I'm going to carry the weight of that instead of you. I'm not going to make you carry it, though I have a right to. That's called justice. Instead, I'm going to carry it. I'm going to carry it. That is how we are reconciled. We aren't reconciled by coming to church or being moral or knowing certain answers. We are reconciled by Jesus' death and resurrection. And so when Paul says that all things are reconciled by this, what he means is that there is no other source of reconciliation. He doesn't mean that distributively, like everything individually. What he's talking about is if you're looking for reconciliation, the only place to find it with God is Jesus. There's no other option. It is either Jesus or nothing at all. So let me be clear. What Paul is doing in this passage is he is trying to fill the entire scope of our vision with Jesus. That there is nothing greater than him, nothing besides him, nothing above him. That he is the creator, sustainer, and reconciler of all things. He is the one through whom everything holds together. The one through whom we who have betrayed God can be reconciled to God. Because of his life, death, and resurrection. Now, why does this matter? And what does it have to do with generosity? Well, I'm glad you asked. Remember what I said earlier. That generosity ultimately is not about our money, it's about our hearts. Right? And we know this. Look, when, when, when Jesus, in one of, the, one of the times when he was walking on earth, he... he um, he gave a little object lesson, right? And he's, he's standing in the temple courts and um, people start asking him about money and all this stuff. And he says, you see that old lady right there? And she's walking up. She's a widow. She drops in like chump change, like, whoop, like a penny in, in the thing. And he's like, you all give out of your abundance. She gives out of her poverty. In other words, she didn't give as much as the rest of those people. What was important wasn't the amount. It wasn't the amount on the check. It was what was in her heart. That was what made that pleasing, right? So generosity is about our heart. So before we get to anything else over the next several weeks, we need to get to who is our Lord. And so I'd like to look at that in three ways. First is who is the center? You know what this passage shouts over and over and over again? That you and I are not the center of the universe. You and I are not the center of the universe. Jesus stands at the center of everything and not us. And look, I know that you and I were supposed to learn that lesson when we were five. But I don't think we did. Okay? I mean, have you? See, we live in a world now where my desires or my experience overrides my biology. Where my opinion can override facts, where my wants overrides my responsibilities, and where saying no to myself, unless coerced, no matter how it is affecting others, is seen as oppressive and possibly even abusive. 
You shouldn't say no to yourself. That's something phobic. Fill in the blank. I'm not sure what you call that, but it sounds an awful lot like believing that you and I are the center of all things. That we get to determine what reality is. But this passage declares in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the center of it all. He created it all, which means he defines our reality, not us. He sustains it all, which literally means whether you experience it or not, whether you believe it or not, you can't do anything without him. Nothing. And he's the only reconciler, which means he gets to tell us what it actually looks like to have a healthy relationship with God. This is why, if you want to deny this, if you want to deny any of this, the first thing you have to do is to make Jesus less than the Bible says he is. Because if he's not who he says he is, then you don't really have to take what he says seriously, right? I mean, very, very long ago did he walk the earth. And if he's not who he says he is, then his words seemed locked in that time period because he doesn't really know. He said some good things for then, but not now. Now, I know some of us here are like, you know, I don't, I don't believe that, right? It's okay. You can admit that. That's fine. You're like, my God wouldn't be like that. But listen to me. I, I, I get that. I've shared that opinion over the years. But how do you know? How do you know? See, to say God to me is like, and then you fill in the blank, generally means that God lines up with you and your opinions. He is a God that never challenges you. He doesn't have to because he always thinks what you think. It's amazing. It's like, I hold these things to be important. What do you know? So does God. I don't think these things are a big deal. What do you know? Neither does God. This is great. This is great. It's part and parcel to saying that God is just you, but louder. Or worse, that God actually answers to you. Listen, friends, just because you don't like something does not mean it's not true. Ever since I was six, I did not like the fact that I cannot fly. But if I jump off a cliff, I'm going to die. Right? Doesn't matter. You may not like the fact that God does not answer to us, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. Jesus is the center through whom and for whom everything exists. Which brings me to our second question. Who are you for? You want to know why we as Christians, and I'm just going to speak to Christians here for a second. You want to know why we as Christians struggle so much to bring our lives in line with Jesus and his priorities? Why it is that we think about the things he tells us to do or the way he calls us to be and we go, yeah, I don't know. That sounds great, maybe tomorrow. It is because we think we are for something other than him. To be for something is to think that you will be completed. You will be satisfied by that. Like if, if, I am, if, if, if I am for something, then that is the thing that will take away that feeling of emptiness that's right in here. But listen, when Jesus said that he came that we might have abundant life, he didn't mean more life. Like, like 
You're not quite alive yet. You need more of it. I need to pour more life into that container. He, ta- he was talking about fuller life. The life that we were made for. An abundant life is not just quantitatively more. It's something qualitatively different. It's a qualitative life. But we don't believe that. And so we chase other things, but they never satisfy us. We overwork and sacrifice everything for our jobs because we believe that we were made for success. We hide who we are and put up false fronts because we believe we were made for a good reputation. Every time we get a pay raise or offered another line of credit, we increase our lifestyle because we think we were made for more stuff. We don't give generously because we think we were made for money. We don't step out in faith because we think we were made for safety. We don't share our faith because we, we, we think we're made for people's approval. We keep misusing our sexuality because we think we were made for self-fulfillment or for pleasure. We keep going back and back and back to that substance that just kind of keeps us going because we think we were made for forgetting things. Listen to me. You know why it's not working? Do you know why you always seem to need more? Right? Listen. I'm with you. This isn't like, this isn't, I mean, I know I'm up high, but this isn't someone like preaching from on high. This is, this is, this is our situation. We are all here. Why it is that we never get enough, that that one drink leads to another, that that, that, that that one success must go to another, that that one person saying, I love you, has to go to more people. Why, why is that? It's because you weren't made for those things. If you were made for money, more money would satisfy you. If you were made for sex, then more sex would satisfy you. If you were made for success, then that raise that promotion would have satisfied you but you weren't and so long as you keep looking to those things you will never be satisfied because satisfaction is not about what you have it's about who you know not only that listen here's here's the dirty little secret of these things so long as you keep living for these things they control you I know you think you control them. It's like, no, no, no. I'm in control. I, as a matter of fact, like I'm in control of my checkbook. I tell that money exactly where to go to keep me safe. And you have to have it, don't you? Because if not, you're not safe. And so who is controlling whom? See, you will live for something. You can't help it. It's how we were made. You will live for something. But Jesus died so that you could be reconciled to him and live for who you were made for. And so over and over again, over the next um, eight weeks, like I said, with a little break in the middle, I got to go on vacation, sorry. But with a little break in the middle, we're gonna be challenged by this question. Is what you're living for worth Christ dying for? Is what we are giving our lives for worth Christ giving his life for? If not, is he really Lord over us? Are we really for him or are we for our lifestyle? Our lattes, our spin classes, and our well-educated but insanely busy children. 
Are we really for him or are we for new tech, our next vacation, our financial plan, and our upward mobility? Because you see, when you reject these things, these things that the Bible calls idols, and return to Jesus, you actually can grow in faith and in generosity and not using people. Because you know that money, sex, and approval, and reputation can't give you what you are chasing. They can't give you what you're looking for. Okay. So that sounds really good. But all I've really said is why that isn't going to help you. The real question is why change? Why change it? Why, why try and change the center of everything? Because if we're being honest, most of us have been trying to live for these things for so long that we're convinced that it's not that they don't work. It's that we just don't have enough of them yet. And what, what I've just asked, what I think the scripture is asking us to do is to completely go, no, 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 that's not going to work at all. You need to go over here. And going over here means you have to take a risk that I've been wrong for my whole life. For my whole life. So why do it? Why change the center of everything in your life? Why be open to reorienting what you're living for? Well, on the one hand, like I said, because if, if this, if what I just said is right, if the Bible's true, then we won't be satisfied unless we do. You see, if we were made for God but continue to live for something else, we're turning away from our design. But probably better is this. Jesus died for us so that we could return to living for him. He was betrayed. He was rejected. We turned away from him, but he continued to be for us. So why be open to the lordship of Jesus? Why, why be open to the idea that Jesus as Lord is enough for us? Because he is the only Lord who loves you when you fail him. Because I'll tell you right now, if you're for success and you don't get that promotion, there is no forgiveness in that thing. You're going to be living in a shame pool until you somehow atone for that. If you live for approval and you find the half a dozen people in this room who are like, yeah, I'm not so sure about that one. You know, that's probably true, right? Like, come on. You get, a, you get a couple hundred people in a room, there's probably a half dozen people who are like, I'm not sure about that guy. And me too, right? Like, but if, if you are for approval and you find one of those people, their lack of approval, will, you'll never be able to make that up. Devastation is what happens. But Jesus is the Lord who loves us even when we fail him. He is the only Lord who gives us life at the cost of his own. He is the only Lord who dies in the place of rebels and he is the only Lord who makes enemies into heirs. And so we have to start here. We have to start here because if we miss who the Lord is, if we miss what we're living for, then none of the rest of it matters. I could tell you all day what Jesus says about money, but you're gonna be like, and? Sounds good, I'll get around to it. But if we reorient that, if we look to him for life instead of the other things, then the rest will come. And that is because, first and foremost, we need to see who everything is about. And then it'll all lie into place. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, 
who with the Father and the Spirit together are worshipped and glorified. One God in three persons now and forever. Fill our vision with you. Lord, do this so that we can reorient our lives. By the Spirit would you do this. For there is nothing else that will satisfy us but you. Nothing else that will keep us safe, give us a status, make us into the one that we were made to be. Only you. So we ask that you would do this. We are desperate for it. And for those in this room who still are not really sure whether they even want it, I pray you would break through, even this morning. Do your work. Reconcile us to yourself. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.